Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. We welcome you to Bite Into It, where we talk tech, computing, the internet, cyber trucks, uh, all the interesting stuff. Uh, this evening behind the desk, we have Dan Morganti. Dan, how are you? Good. How are you, Warren? Doing well. Um, how's your week in technology been? Um, not too bad. Just playing more video games as usual. Yeah? <laughs> yep. Um, anything remarkable? What, what's been the one you've enjoyed the most? Um, I'm still working my way through Horizon Zero Dawn, so I'm trying to 100% get the platinum trophies that's where you get all the achievements Uh, um and i'm like six trophies short at this point mm. so and i've come to the conclusion that they're essentially meaningless but they make me feel good for getting them so Uh, uh, um yeah it's it's keeping me playing much longer than i would have otherwise so yeah good i'm not sure if that's good or bad video game design but yeah i enjoy it it's a little bit manipulative but yeah it's good I reckon they'd enjoy hearing it in any case. Um, I'll be with you also. uh, I'm Warren Davies. Uh, Tonight on the show, uh, in the wake of the uh, massive bushfires around Australia over the past three weeks, we're all asking uh, questions about our emissions as a country and our contribution to global warming. Uh, We do need to do more about how we consume energy to reduce our emissions. Uh, And one young startup looking at this and the Internet of Energy, uh, which we'll ask them about, is Redgrid. Uh, One of the founders, Dr. Adam Bumpus, joins us on the show in a few minutes. Um, it may not surprise you to know that one of the most common images on the internet uh, is a Playboy centerfold. Uh, the image led to the creation of the JPEG file format, um, but has a legacy that could haunt us for decades uh, unless we do something about it. Um, the Losing Lena film, uh, supported by Code uh, Code Like a Girl, uh, has recently launched, and we'll chat with founder and CEO of Code Like a Girl, uh, Ali Watson, a little later in the show, um, to talk about the film uh, and this particular image. But before then, uh, we do have uh, a bit of news. Um, Dan, uh, Google has um, shown a few people the door, I understand. Yeah, so Google in the firing line again from activists and protesters. Um, Google terminated Rebecca Rivers' uh, employment with them. She was an employee slash activist for and against the company, or more so against the company than, or more for, for, uh, for uh, freedom of privacy and things like that, mm. which... Uh, went against Google's ethos a lot of the time. Um, Google declined to comment further, uh, but earlier this month, uh, Rivers and Lawrence Berland, another um, employee activist, uh, were put on leave for allegedly violating company policies. Um, Google said that they searched files that weren't pertinent to their own uh, case um, jobs. So one of them looked up calendar uh, calendar dates for other employees um, would, where they found out that they were meeting with an anti-union consulting group um, called ISI Consultants. Um, and yeah, basically Google has moved uh, forward and terminated uh, yeah, Rivers, Berland and allegedly two other people's um, employment with Google. Mm. So it's... Um it's not an isolated incident as well. Um, since, uh, I guess, last year, um, there's been a, a bit of disquiet about how um, uh, people within Google have a, an issue um, uh, uh, or a bone to pick or, or even just a, you know, a legitimate grievance of any kind uh, have been dealt with. Um, 
as you can imagine, it's not uh, particularly strong in terms of uh, union representation. So um, uh, people have started uh, marching out and um, uh, last year around uh, 20,000 Google employees uh, had a walkout uh, to protest the company's handling of sexual harassment um, uh, allegations against senior executives. Um, yeah, so I, I guess you could imagine like an employer, they're, they're probably concerned about this and, and trying to kind of nip it in the bud. But um, you, you do need to... Um, find a better way to, to uh, sort of deal with these um, complaints. Um, yeah, absolutely. And it becomes like this almost philosophical argument in the end as well because if someone, like someone close to me, was to be fired for something that they'd said on uh, or like a protest that they'd gone to or something like that, um, if they're dragging their business's name in the mud, you can kind of understand why they would want to uh, be, rep- the company would reprimand those people. But once something like, Google reaches a critical mass where it's providing such a public good. Um, the 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 right to protest for its employees seems to be much more uh, pertinent to them as a person, mm. not so much how it affects the company. Mm. So, and uh, I think that reflects on society as a whole as well. So, mm. um, people want to be able to use the product in a with a fairly clear uh, clear conscience as well. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, another thing that's uh, causing a, a little bit of disquiet is um, .org, which was um, a, a top-level domain uh, for um, originally designed for not-for-profits um, uh, and was um, in fairly safe hands until recently, uh, has been sold. Um, uh, there's been, a, I guess, a, a radical shift um, um, to sell it to uh, a, a organization, uh, Ethos Capital, um, which is a private equity fund and a consortium of three families of uh, Republican billionaires, um, the Perots, the Romneys and the Johnsons. Um, so formerly uh, with, um, the, I guess, pricing and, and the way um, uh, it all worked with uh, .org, um, uh, not-for-profits um, didn't find it too challenging to pay for it, um, and meet contracts and, and so forth. Um, but now there's a lot of concern that um, uh, uh, some of the domains will be uh, inaccessible um, and potentially some of the um, sites and contents may even be shut down. Um, yeah, these these particular families and um, some of the uh, organisations connected to them have a bit of a history of um, um, that doesn't instill confidence. Um yeah, there's some interesting um, sort of uh, points in this article here about how when um, Nazi websites were stripped of their domain names um, by registers and um, yeah. if, if the Republican company that owns, um, Republican-backed company that owns um, .org disagrees with some of the um, organisations or their points of view, uh, will we see some of these sites just kind of disappearing overnight? Or does that mean that the .org designation is still reserved for... Uh, non, not for profits as well, or you know, largely. Other, There's yeah, okay. other 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 businesses do use it, but yeah. it was originally designed for not yeah. for profits. Because yeah. yeah, I like that dot uh, org is used for like it's a good shorthand for well, I can trust this website, or yeah. because it's an organisation with good intentions, but mm. um, with uh, rich billionaires at the helm, I'm, I'm less entitled to trust the dot org domain. Exactly. Um, so yeah, it is concerning. Um, <sighs> I'm not sure what to make of that one. Yeah. Um, 
in, uh, I, I guess, a follow-up to a, a story that we had last week on the show, um, we had a chat with uh, Associate Professor uh, Johan Lindberg of um, uh, School of Media, Film and Journalism at Monash Uni. We were talking about um, uh, political advertising and the move by Twitter to uh, ban that from November. Um, over the past week, some news has come out that an overwhelming majority of Australians want political advertising on Facebook and other platforms to be subject to tough new rules. Uh, around two-thirds of Australians uh, favour an outright ban on political advertising on social media. Um, yeah, I, I guess it follows a, a federal election in which there was a, a lot of online misinformation. Um, you know, uh, we all see how kind of political campaigns go, where the kind of um, slurring and mud-throwing really carries on, especially into the final weeks. Um yeah, one of the big claims uh, against Labor was um, a death tax um, and a car tax and a tax on in- inheritance. Basically, Labor was taxing everything, um, a-, a lot of it which was false. Yeah. Um, you know, um, so that's interesting. Um, I just want to see each each political party, they get six dot points. This is what they're running for. That's the only <laughs> advertisement they're allowed to do. Just one, one, one nice picture. Yeah, that's it. Mm. Uh, around three quarters of those surveyed, uh, surveyed by the group um, said uh, social media companies such as Facebook should be required to ensure the political ads carried on their websites are factual. Um, seven out of ten people said they should be forced to confirm that organisations behind their ads are registered locally rather than foreign as well, um, which is good, especially in light of um, uh, sort of suggestions of um, tampering with um, uh, the election uh, in 2016 in the States. Um, so that's interesting as well. Um, good kind of um, uh, period on our conversation from last week. Uh, Cybertruck. Yes. Internet has been awash with Cybertrucks. What's, Absolutely. What's going on? Well, there? Elon Musk, Elon Musk. What? There wouldn't be a bite into it show without uh, mentioning Elon Musk in some capacity, but he's mm. uh, unveiled the Cybertruck, which is quite a, an interesting design, uh, first of all. it's um, What does it look like? Um, like a cross between... Um, something from Back to the Future and uh, a tank from Robocop. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, it's very sharp edges and chrome and, um, yeah, but the internet had a field day with a, a press conference that Elon uh, was using to reveal the, the Cybertruck in which he was explaining the shatterproof glass which immediately shattered after he threw oh, a giant no. steel ball against it uh, twice. So oh, no. thinking it wasn't going to happen the second time, he did it again. Um, this caused the stocks in tes- uh, Tesla to plummet nearly 7%. Mm. Um, and Elon has since come out on Twitter and explained uh, why it happened. They knew why it happened. Um, he had previously hit the car with a sledgehammer uh, underneath, which caused... Uh, shattered the window or cracked the window at the bottom which right. weakened the integrity of the window before right. uh, throwing the steel ball into uh, the window right. which is just a simple engineering error they should have thrown the ball first used a sledgehammer second um, could happen to anyone yeah yeah basically but uh, yeah it's all a bit ridiculous so do you know how many they've sold so far um, I do not, but yeah, it's over two hundred thousand. Over two hundred thousand. Ten ten billion dollars worth of pre-orders. Oh my god, that is yeah. crazy. I mean, it it looks like a space car. Like it's it, an awful. It's an awful design. Yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> um, not is it just an awful design, but um, uh, in Australia, uh, the suggestion is it could actually put other road users at risk. Um, uh, so a lot of thought does go into um, designs and crumple zones and uh, all of those kinds of things to help with uh, pedestrians and cyclists who are around one-fifth of fatalities on the roads. So um, um, 
Yeah, there's a lot of yeah. sharp edges on that thing. Yeah, um, ANCAP, the Australian uh, Australia's New Car Assessment Program, um, which is the leading crash test authority, um, has said uh, the car doesn't meet uh, a lot of the standards. Um, and, um, yeah, they're not looking forward to, um, I guess, the Cybertruck appearing in Australia, if it can actually um, be registered and... Um, uh, on the road. Um, yeah, you pointed to the most recent Tesla uh, Model 3 uh, ANCAP rating. So it scored uh, five stars. The vulnerable road use vulnerable road user score was the lowest of the four categories evaluated at just 74%. So Tesla's making these, you know, uh, amazing looking vehicles, but uh, not necessarily safe for people outside the car. Form over function. Indeed. Um I'm really interested in starting a backyard space agency. Me too. Sh- should I be doing it now? Absolutely. All okay. signs all signs point to yes. So, um, Santa Maria is an island in the Azores archipelago. So, this is part of Portugal. And Portugal plans to make this an international space hub in the near future. So, they want... Uh, government business they want private business they want to be launching satellites they want to be launching they uh, want space our rockets down, our rockets yeah they want our rockets basically great um so ba- uh, basically um this is another thing slightly related to elon musk where mm. he just started his own private uh private space company mm. and uh it's kind of opened the floodgates for other individuals and countries and uh whatnot to say hey why can't i do that so mm. there's um, a whole second space race essentially to get yeah. uh, to get commercialized uh, space travel off uh, off to a flying start mm. pun absolutely intended there mm. um, so I, I guess back in the day uh, it was uh, primarily led by countries and there was um, sort of pride prestige um, you know opening up new frontiers was important for countries but um, that's less so important now and we've kind of moved into other areas but yeah. um, it's opened up lots of opportunities for sort of um, private enterprise to fill the void yeah and even smaller countries where it w- used to be out of the realms of financial possibility mm. now now uh, um, they can invest in uh, whatever amount and have a semi-successful mm. uh, space agency. So We've got a space agency here in Australia as well. There's the Australian Space Agency. Yeah, so yeah. surely that's the start of something good. But um, yeah, if you're looking to do it, um, the average satellite, um, you can now launch a satellite for a tenth of the price of the average satellite yeah. um, a couple of decades back, I think, which is great. Yeah, it used to cost uh, $8,100 per pound on the rocket. Yep. Uh, now it's less... To le- uh, down to less than one thousand dollars per pound. I reckon we could get a few pounds up in space yeah. between us, <laughs> <laughs> just like a couple of cheese sandwiches or something. Yeah, yeah, that's. Uh, but I think even just to get two cheese sandwiches up, the weight is, needs to be like twenty twenty thousand times, or the fuel needs to be twenty thousand times the weight of the, the weight of the payload. So uh, right, it's a lot of fuel. Yeah, so it's a lot. I have to think about this. A lot of extra pounds just for the fuel to get it up there, and uh, the might have to crowdfunded yeah this is why i'm not a rocket scientist those numbers are already hurting my head okay um you're listening to bite into it on triple r this week with dan and warren triple r uh, if you thought there was one internet out there you are mistaken there are lots of internets and we are tracking them down one by one and figuring out exactly what they are. And we're about to learn about the Internet of Energy, um, one of the uh, startups that is um, doing some interesting stuff around how we use energy um, and potentially use less of it is Redgrid. And we're now joined on the show by Dr. Adam Bumpus, one of the founders of Redgrid. Adam, thanks for joining us. No problem. Glad to be here. 
Um, I, I, I saw in the paper today, we are a, a, a hot little country. We are uh, emitting a lot of emissions and a good amount of that is connected to um, our energy use. Um, how does Red Grid help with our energy use? I, I know you're not here to necessarily save the planet, but how do you contribute towards that? <laughs> well, um, look, yeah, we want to do our very best to uh, to save what we can in the planet. Um, um, we firmly believe uh, that, as you said, like we've got a massive problem with our fossil fuel industry and the emissions we have from that. And that is um, that is something that's not going away anytime really fast unless we can deal with uh, how the grid actually can um, absorb and use as much clean energy as possible. And so, um, first and foremost, like we're here to reduce emissions and by changing the way people use energy and changing the way the grid interacts with people to use those energy. So basically you can think about um, the grid as being um, being kind of overloaded. It's like an overloaded brain. And so when, in, when we get into uh, these really hot parts of the summer, when it gets too hot, everyone's pumping on their air conditioning to stay nice and cool, we start to see the grid get so overloaded with the demand for power that you start actually having to shut off um, parts of the grid. That's what we had earlier this year with the, the grid shutting down. Um, and so this means a couple of things that are really important. Um, the first thing is that we don't have enough energy at those points in time to keep everyone with their air conditioners running. And so what we have to start to do is help orchestrate and coordinate each individual person as if they're part of a collective rather than just being by themselves. And so that needs intelligence behind the meter. It's what's called like inside your house. And that doesn't really exist very much at the moment. It's starting to happen, but not much of it is is really translating to real value for those people. And so what we try and do is help um, air conditioners have a brain and things in people's houses that use electricity, give them a brain so they can start to say, okay, cool, it's getting really hot right now. The grid's really demanding a lot and we're trying to switch off. The second part of that is that Right now, um, we just get centralized signals. We get a signal from uh, the market operator. We get a signal from the grid that says, you guys, switch off. And what we need to do is we need to start saying, well, it's a two-way conversation. It's not just being told what to do. People have to, their air conditioners and their uh, energy assets in their house also have the opportunity to talk to the grid. So what we do is we help those those, those different um, pieces of devices in people's houses, air conditioners, you know, fridges, all the kind of stuff that you use energy in your house, talk to the grid and have a conversation around who's going to switch off and who's going to switch on at the right points in time. And that's what we are going to do. And by, by, by doing that, we... Um, we get rid of emissions because we firstly can increase people's efficiency in their houses of what they use electricity for. And secondly, uh, we can turn off and reduce electricity consumption at the times when there's lots of fossil fuel being put on the grid. And the third one, which is really critical because this is starting to happen, especially in Australia, is that we're, ena- we're starting to enable how smart uh, so-called solar soaking can happen. So when we have so much solar that's being pumped out in the middle of the day and it's not being used properly, it's just getting a small tariff back from your retailer we're working on how to make that start to have productive use. So we start to switch from being a fossil fuel economy that runs on a fossil fuel economy uh, to a one that runs on solar uh, throughout the day for productive use. So the, the the whole grid is a lot more complex than it used to be, where we're all sort of passive receivers, and you know there wasn't such a thing as a smart device. How, how can you easily make sense of not only um, smart devices but dumb devices and we're also um, uh, producers as well as consumers of, of energy? Um, yeah. Are you literally, is uh, I guess a simple way of looking at it, you, you literally just put a, a little bit of software um, uh, in front of each device and they can all figure it out as to where the demand is and uh, where the power needs to be sent? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good way of putting it, Warren. Um, 
it, we're in a, if the grid is getting increasingly complicated, just as you said, for the last 140 years, all the energy's gone one way, from the coal-fired power station along the wires into your house. And now the energy goes the other way. It goes from your solar panels and your battery or, or whatever you've got in your house back out into the grid. So um, the second part that's really important you mentioned there is that a lot of people think, oh, this is oh, that's great because... You know, you have to be, you have to have your super smart thermostat. You have to have your complete house all automated, all this kind of stuff. And the truth of the matter is, we don't need to have that right now. What we need to have is a few little devices that can interact with even old air conditioning systems and building management systems and help those systems become smart. So you're right. What we do is we we're a software company, so we we have a little bit of code that helps um, give those uh, those devices a brain to understand what's happening around them, so they can figure out what their neighbors are doing and what the grid is. Doing and start to talk to each other about who's going to who might switch off and switch on and then and then they get rewarded for doing that. So it's a little bit of code that goes into some um, some very smart equipment or some just pretty simple stuff that then can control your air conditioner at home. So like a little box that sits there and it beeps at your air conditioner. And it does and it, and it helps it um, become much smarter than it actually is already. Mm. It seems like a, I'm trying to imagine um, kind of a pitch night a few few nights a few years ago or what have you going. It's 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 machine learning, it's AI, it's blockchain, and and it kind of is all of those things. But it's it's a practical use of those things rather than um, some of the other yeah. kind of things we hear about. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? There's so much. Oh man, like we we spend a lot of time doing startup stuff and going to lots of things, and there is a lot of buzzwords that are getting thrown around for this stuff. Um, and everyone's got an AI and a machine learning component and a blockchain. Also, you're absolutely right. What is what's really important is that none of that means anything unless you're actually providing some value to the person who's got the air conditioner in their house and something of value to the world, uh, which is reducing our emissions and you know creating a, creating a more stable grid so we can all live really well. Because most people don't really care about their energy. They just care about what it does. So, um, But uh, you're absolutely right. So we are using all those things, machine learning, AI. We're actually not using blockchain. So one of the critical things is, but it's a really good point, we're actually using something um, that is, it's an awful term, but it's basically post-blockchain. So what it means by that is that we use something that has all the good stuff of blockchain, which has you know a, a distributed ledger, it has immutability, it has all the security, full encryption, all of that. But instead of going out to a big blockchain where you have to verify and get this ledger on all these nodes around the world, we use a thing called Holochain, which means that each individual device, instead of being part of this one massive ledger, actually contains a small amount of that information for the ledger at any one given time. But what's really critical about this bit is that each device then becomes an agent. So rather than based on data, we're based on agent centricity. What this means is it's basically infinitely scalable because each little device then talks to another device which is basically the same thing then talks to another device they're all interacting and talking to each other rather than talking to this big global ledger in the sky mm. and so one of the things that we're really uh, we're testing this with some of our partners and clients now is that how can we can build something now that is mm, moving from the bottom up and out rather than from the top down and in and that's what we're really excited about because it's kind of like the way nature works, like ants and bees. So mm. each bee has kind of a bit of information about what it needs to do, um, and each ant has a bit of information about what it needs to do, but it doesn't have all the information. Yet if someone stamps their foot down, all the ants change direction, they move around, then they reform, they reconfigure, and then they carry on with their emission. And that's what we see in the energy system. And actually our simulations have shown that um, we can create a system whereby instead of having a big wave of change that has to happen across a whole suburb, we have these little waves of change, little ripples that then change and deal with the issue that's happening uh, and create a benefit for everyone that's doing it. Um, uh, this is fascinating, really. Um, you sound like you got the design down. Is um, 
have you got uh, like energy providers on board with this kind of thing? How is how are they going to fit into the equation? So did you say energy providers? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, absolutely. So we've been working with um, a couple of different retailers who are doing this. They're interested in this um, for a couple of different reasons. Uh, they're interested because right now we are moving, well, obviously 100% moving away from fossil fuels. It's just not happening fast enough. And people, people generally, given the choice, would rather not kill the planet than kill the planet. But most people just want to have an energy bill that's lower and energy that stays on the whole time, which is totally understandable. So when we're working with the retailers and working with different energy companies who are providing energy, um, they're saying to us, well, what can we do to make our customers happier? Because right now, people basically just get a bill once a quarter that they hate. And suddenly people get bill shock as well because they've got no visibility about what they are actually using for their electricity. So they're, in, they're, part of the, they're part of the solution, really. But one of the key players in this that's really part of this are the, the people who do the poles and wires, the, the, um, the poles and wires that take the electricity to your house. Because they are still going to be really important in what the grid is in the future. This is not about going off-grid. It's about being in, par- in part of a really intelligent grid run by intelligent devices. And so what they they're finding right now is that they are having to send signals to people to slow down their solar exports. So when you've got solar on your roof, if your area's got too many houses with solar on it, they start to say, well, you can't export your solar now, so you don't get paid for that. That is a problem because what happens is the solar pumps into the grid, it's going the other way than normal, and we get a whole bunch of grid problems. So the grid wants us to use that solar productively. It's just we don't have a mechanism to do it yet. So what we are doing is saying, well, if you've got a school that's there and if you've got a factory that's there or if you've got something else that's working nearby, let's reward those people by using your solar energy. Um, and we're starting – we can't do this right now because of regulation in terms of um, creating those actual mini-grids in the wild. But what we can do is we are, what we're doing is working with um, re- rewards that help people understand what that looks like. And we're dealing with some organizations who are running small micro-grids uh, to help them do that right now. So it is, it's really exciting because it's like – We've got this big problem. We've got to solve all the energy going, not enough energy to help people, loads of solar, which is a fantastic thing, and we're going to reduce our emissions. And right now, we have the technology to try and make that happen. It's interesting how we're um, rediscovering kind of 1860 or or sort of the early days of uh, power generation in the country where every city had its own power station. And Exactly. And it's really interesting. It was in the 1880s, 1883, and Thomas Edison... um, did his thing with electricity and actually came up with the first sort of light bulb electricity transmission system. Um, at the same time, Alexander Graham Bell came up with the first telephone system. It was literally the 1880s. It was like, mm. it was like a, what a nuts time. There's people, horses and carts and cowboys and crazy stuff in the world, and someone invented electricity and the telephone system. And if you look at the telephone system today, we would not recognize what, what was there in the 1880s. Like Thomas Edison would just not know what was going on. But if you look at the energy system, it's pretty much the same. And so mm. we are getting this kind of, you're right, like the 2020s are going to be a massive radical change in how we understand and experience um, what energy is from the old system to the new. And mm. we firmly believe that it's not about just kind of, um, you know, tweaking, t- t- tinkering at the edges. It's about a fundamental shift in um, how energy is understood by the devices that use it. Mm. If people are interested in, in finding out more or, or sort of getting involved, where can they find you guys? 
Yeah, so um, look for us on uh, on Twitter uh, at redgrid uh, underscore io. Um, our website is redgrid.io. Uh, we're a startup, so we haven't updated it for a while. It's got lots of pitches on there, so come and watch our pitches. If you search for Redgrid on YouTube, you'll find a bunch of things from us there. Um, but drop us a line. Uh, you can also email us at info at redgrid.io, and that will get to us, and um, we're on LinkedIn as well. So just please just ping us some information or questions. We're really keen to hear from people who are out there who want to um, trial this and want to work with us and try and figure out how to create this, this system and put it into place. Um, we're young and we're kind of hungry to get out there and do this work. So if anyone's listening who wants to trial some of this, please let us know and we'll, we'll, we'll be in touch. Hopefully some will. Um, Adam, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Warren. Good to talk to you. Thanks so much. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Uh, you may not realise that uh, one of the interesting legacies of um, uh, early days of the internet was we did need uh, images to um, uh, figure out um, graphical interfaces and how to render images. Um, and the history of one of these images is um, the subject of a, a fascinating documentary supported by Code Like a Girl, uh, Losing Lena, um, was released recently. And we're now joined uh, on the phone uh, by founder and CEO of Code Like a Girl, Ali Watson. Ali, thanks for making time tonight. Hi, Warren. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. <laughs> no trouble. Um, had you actually come across this image in any of your work in the past? Was it was were you literally one of those people in the film who just sort of rolled their eyebrows and went, "Oh, here we go." <laughs> Pretty much. I studied computer science at university, but I never specialised in like computer vision or image processing, which are the two sort of specialised subjects that you would definitely come across Lena if you had studied but um no I was I was surprised when I first heard about the story um which was 18 months ago when we started this project and me and a few other um partners on the project had got together because we we knew this was so uh, such a fascinating part of computing history um and quite symbolic we felt of how women were currently being treated but also had been treated in the past so we we sat together trying to figure out what's the best way to tell Lena's story um and never knew back then that you know 18 months later we'd be launching a documentary so it's been a, a really fascinating project to be on um from code like girls point of view i think um i, I just caught the film uh, about an hour ago. I think it was um, one of the guys from maybe Creatable who was talking about how, um, while the, the image itself may not be around as much as it used to be, the, the legacy of its um, and its impact on culture really is. And there's a couple of gents in the film who are kind of shifting awkwardly in their seat and kind of saying, well, you know, <laughs> that's just the way things were. And, and then there's a lot of qualifiers where they're like, but they don't have to be and maybe we can change. And... Um, it, it must be an interesting point in, in, in sort of, I guess, a knife-edging culture. Yeah, and I think that's the key of this documentary. It's, it's really looking at the history, the timeline of computing, looking at the past to work out how can we do better in the future. Um, and I think Greg's been a, an incredible advocate. Um, so Greg is the co-founder of Creatable, as you, as you said. And he's been doing a lot of work to raise awareness of the documentary. He's in the documentary himself as well and all his amazing work that he's doing with kids. Um, but I think really the key takeaway is that our mission is to 
debunk um, this myth that men are innately more suited to career in technology. So whilst the, the documentary really does focus on Lena's story, it also examines a lot of the history of computing and highlights that women were among some of the first programmers. Um, and there was some there's some really amazing cultural references of, you know, this rise of the white male nerd stereotype that we see today in Silicon Valley and the Big Bang Theory type programs. Um, but talks a lot about how this kind of environment is very unwelcoming for women. Um, and so a big part of this campaign and what we're doing with the Losing Lena documentary is to really tell the truth about what history was and to let people make up their own mind about um, the cultural barriers that exist today for women, but to pledge their allegiance that they care about the future of technology, they care about welcoming girls into this industry because diversity, and particularly gender diversity, is really needed, um, particularly as we move towards AI and machine learning. Um, And the story of Lena is this cautionary tale which... We have saw, you know, women be excluded from technology and the consequences of that um, are kind of devastating, not being able to have solutions in a future that is equally represented. I think technology is it's not just a niche industry, you know. Sometimes we always get criticisms when we do code like a girl. It's about, you know, well, why don't you not care about the fact there's not more women in, you know, um, trash collection or there's not more women in army services, but the thing is, technology is every industry. It is our future. It's our digital life. Um, and so it's not just this kind of small thing that doesn't really have a huge effect on the world. It's the opposite. And particularly if we look at AI machine learning and how they will affect millions of us in the future, to not have women involved in the creation and development of these solutions um, is very worrying. So the whole idea of this campaign is to look at the past, but also give a cautionary tale if we don't fix this and if we don't fix it soon, what is the future going to look like? Um, and it's, yeah, I I thoroughly recommend everybody to, to watch it, not just from an educational standpoint, um, but some of the, the arguments and the debunking of myths, um, there's a lot of people that genuinely believe that men are innately better at these skills. And, and that's obviously quite easily, you know, you can quite easily assume that given how male-dominated it is. Um, but what I love about this documentary is just how clear you can see how this all happened. Like, how did we get to where we are today? Um, and I think everybody needs to see that. And I think that um, not just people in technology, but people who are in other industries, I think, will take a lot away from this documentary too. I think one of the the interesting points in the film was when uh, 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 an employer decided that um, uh, the best way to get people um, to program was to find people who didn't like other people. So um, that's generally men. We need men because they generally, you know, are, are much less congenial. Um, and then it kind of went off from there, even to the point where Amazon sort of still does so today um, with recruiting. Um, just such Absolutely. a simple, de- such a simple decision. Totally, and there's a funny there's a funny white paper, and I can't remember what university um, brought it out, but it's called Men Like Shopping Too, and it's exactly the same <laughs> the same problem where we train algorithms and we train computers based on data sets, and some of those data sets come from the internet, some of them come from databases online, and but these databases have biases in them. If we teach a computer how to what a what an image of cooking looks like, but most images have women cooking in them. 
then the computer will not just learn what cooking looks like, it will learn that women like cooking. <laughs> and so if there's not diversity in the data sets, which is what I think has happened with that employer you, that you're referring to, what happened is they had a ton of like history of men getting these jobs due to the talent pipeline. But that doesn't necessarily mean that women can't do the job. And so we need to sort of examine and put processes and restrictions in place to make sure these biases are not seeping in and amplifying um, biases in machine learning. So that's that's the biggest scary thing. And I think even watching the documentary, as a woman sitting watching it for the very first time, I had tears running down my face because um, it's a very dark reality that I don't want my gender to be facing in the future. There was a, an example where I think University of Sydney um, had been working hard on, uh, I guess, um, it, potentially positive discrimination to, to make a difference here and um, had only made a difference of 2% in admissions uh, for, for young women into their courses. Um, the, the documentary talks about uh, a few changes that have been made there and, uh, and uh, at high schools and so forth. For, for people who don't know Code Like a Girl, what, what sorts, sorts of initiatives really make an impact here? How can we make a difference within you know, five years or ten years to, to really correct this? Um, great question, Warren. I'm glad that you're <laughs> – I can plug a little bit of Code Like a Girl. Well, we, we believe that um, – so we have three services that we run. We do coding camps for little girls ages 8 to 12. And these are three days of um, quite, you know, long curriculums where we teach the kids about coding, but within a context. So, for example, our last coding camps was called Into the Wilderness. And we're not just teaching coding for the sake of coding. We're teaching them in a real-world application. So teaching them how big data and technology is being used to monitor climate change, to understand the changes of habitats and endangered species and teaching them almost empowering them with skills that give them hope that they can, you know, look to a bright future, that they can help contribute to solutions to big problems like climate change. Um, So teaching coding in these really, you know, real-world contexts help kids a lot, and particularly girls are really um, engaging with this type of teaching. Um, Other examples we do are like magic and mischief and music and memory, where we can combine um, really fun creative activities with technology. Um, And I believe that's the same (laughs) philosophy that Creatable, which is another organisation on the the documentary, also um, adopted. And it's, it's combining creativity with technology. It's creating purpose with technology, which I think really appeals to young people, not just girls. Um, But what we find is having exclusive classes for girls, we get a lot of controversy and stick about that, but actually creating that environment is very welcoming for them. It helps them look around the table and realise how normal it is to be a programmer as a female. They have access to women who are teaching them, so really um, accessible role models to them as well, which definitely helps us. Um, And then also an emphasis on growth mindset. So that's our coding camps. Um, We also... So we teach about a thousand girls a year through them. They're available in Victoria, um, New South Wales, South Australia as of April, um, and ACT. We run them in Canberra. So that's our coding camps. We believe that early exposure to coding and role models for girls um, makes a big change. We've got about thirty percent return rate. So kids are coming back each mm. school holiday and meeting up with their friends, and parents are touching base with each other, checking who's all coming. So, um, and that's only increasing each camp that we do. So we're seeing a really great, um, really great impact um, with them. 
Then we have our internship program. So we started an internship program about 18 months ago, and that was really designed to create a more diverse pathway into technology. We found that we have a shortage. You know, it's it's pretty clear, not enough technologists and too many technology jobs. Um, so women are a massively untapped resource, but unfortunately, universities are just not churning people out fast enough. They're not churning out the, the number of diversity or gender diversity that we need. So at Code Like a Girl, we decided to try and leverage our relationships with corporates to basically come up with um, an internship program that allowed women to enter an entry-level software engineer job and be trained up in the business rather than in the classroom. Um, and we've placed 35 women, or oh, actually just over 35 women, into that internship, and 70% of them are moving on to full-time roles, which has been That's a great. huge success. Yeah, totally. Um, so, And then on the last sort of service that we run, it's, it's an event series. So obviously for this November, we ran the documentary as our event. Um, but these are events that just bring together community, um, very much like your average technology meetup, but particularly focused on celebrating women in technology and putting women at the forefront and showcasing role models. Again, role models is a really big piece of this. Um, we know that just that having that aspirational figure in a leadership role or even a peer that you can bond over and talk to about your projects and programming languages. Like many women, and I can speak from experience, feel quite isolated in the industry. Like, I have no problem getting on with guys. I love, you know, I have many male friends, but it, it took me a long time to find another female who did what I did and, and was a back-end engineer that I could, you know, talk to about my career. And I think that, you know, when you spend, what, 260 days of your life at your job and you mm. you can't really talk to any of your friends about it or your girlfriends about it, um, I think that there's something really nice about forming female friendships of someone who does the same kind of career as you. So um, those events really are about creating networks for women um, and community. So that's what we do at Code Like a Girl. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this was, a really, this was a really big thing for us to be part of this um, campaign and, and part of this documentary because... All I wanted to do as a 26-year-old software engineer was to inspire a couple more kids into coding and being able to participate in a documentary that has the potential to reach millions and create cultural change is just, it's a dream come true. So, yeah, really um, feeling really positive about the whole project and we're getting such an amazing response from, you know, everybody, the media, our community, our peers, our, our male champions. It's been a very, very positive experience, which I'm, I'm really glad to be able to report. If people want to watch the film, um, it's only a short one too. It's like uh, 26 minutes or so. I know, right? You can yeah. fit that in in a lunch break. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so if you want to watch the documentary, which you all should, um, you can find out about it through um, Code Like a Girl's Facebook page. It's exclusive to Facebook Watch. Um, so it's a live, live stream free. Anyone can access it as long as you're on Facebook. Um, and I'm, I'm not actually sure how long it's going to be on Facebook Watch, so maybe get in there quick. Um, I don't think it's going anywhere <laughs> um, too fast, but yeah, check it out on Facebook Watch via the Code Like a Girl EU Facebook page. You can also find it at losinglena.com and it just clicks through um, as well. But, um, I'm so glad you're here, Warren. <laughs> congratulations. It's a great piece of work. And um, yeah, we hope it, uh, the camps are buzzing this summer and, um, and you get a lot more through. Thank you so much, Warren. Appreciate it. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. 
Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or bite into its Twitter or Facebook accounts.